welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And let's go. It's the Duff McKagan joke of the week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling you. How you doing, dude? Oh, you know, I wanted to, uh, do you hear about the guy who uh, covered his balls? He has balls in glitter. Pretty nuts if you ask me. hey Thank you very much. <laughs> that was a good one. I legit, uh, I liked that one. I told my wife and she said it was awful, but I liked it. So thanks to Duff for keeping us laughing every single week. Every single week for the last three years. What a guy. And thanks to all of you who've been laughing along with the Winnipeggers every Thursday night. Dave Spivak, Ribo, and I just released a new episode last night, Made in Winnipeg, about our road trips and experiences seeing one of our favorite bands, Iron Maiden. So wait till you hear the stories from the time we saw Maiden at the Forum in Los Angeles with Eli Roth and his brother Gabe. Surprised any of us made it out of there alive. You can check out the Winnipeggers on my Facebook and YouTube channel. New episodes every Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. All right, so today, back to the rock and roll. I got Matthew and Gunnar Nelson from Nelson are here. I know a lot of you guys had the After the Rain record. It was a huge record, and it came out in October of 1990. We're celebrating 30 years of After the Rain with the story of that album, how Nelson was able to become one of the biggest bands in the world with virtually no support and no money. They were broke when they made that record and bet on themselves in a big way. You'll hear how much they influenced me in my early days in wrestling, uh, their, their hair, the way they dressed. Um, you'll hear from the heights of success that they got uh, with After the Rain to barely being able to release a second album just a couple years later. That's so insane. And the grunge era has something to do with it. And we'll let Matthew and Gunnar tell that story. So here we are, 30 years of After the Rain, one of my favorite records of all time. It's Nelson right here on Talk is Jericho. Well, cool, guys. We'll just uh, jump right into this, man. Um, I'm excited about this because it's interesting. It's the 30th year anniversary of After the Rain for the brothers Nelson, Matthew and Gunnar. But it's also the 30th anniversary of my wrestling career. So this record, your record, came out basically the first week that I left my house to go to wrestling school. So, yeah, so After the Rain holds much more than just uh, the memories of a great record. It actually has memories of kind of almost starting this journey together. It's actually pretty cool. Man, that's wicked. Hopefully you were listening to that record when you were in the gym training and doing all that kind of stuff and helped pass the time a little bit. Well, I especially remember it on the on the long drives and, and on the early road trips and all that sort of stuff. But I remember hearing it, obviously, even in Canada. I was training in Calgary, Canada, and Love and Affection was all over the radio just out of nowhere. And when I heard it was by Nelson, I thought it was just one guy and like Bono or Cher. He's just got <laughs> one name. <laughs> That would have been cool. That would have been cool. <laughs> Gunner could have pulled that one off. What it would have, Gunner, 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 Nelson, Matt. It's never too late. Yeah, I gave him a bad. Got to do it. I got it. Jericho. That's right. It works. Boom. So yeah. let's talk. Does it feel like it's been thirty years? I mean, what a what a crazy, uh, monumental day and week and year for you guys. Well, thanks, Matt. Well, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you know, I'm sure you can relate. You you wake up one day and you go. There's no way in the world it could be 30 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no way in the world because so many of those memories, especially when you're starting out, you know how it is. It's just like it was yesterday. I kind of like liken it to being a relationship in your life where best friends, you don't every single day, but when you when you do, it's just like yesterday. And it kind of feels that way with the Nelson career that it was just like literally just like yesterday that all that stuff was happening. 
Was it one of those things? Because once again, were you guys kind of in the Hollywood scene, writing demos and kind of approaching record labels and, and doing that whole thing? Or like, how quickly did this, did this happen? Because you seemingly came out of nowhere when, when, when this record came out. It was, it was a good question. It was the world's longest overnight success. We, we started playing in clubs when we were 12. So we kind of did a career in reverse, really. You know, we, we started playing when we were about six and seven years old, respectively. Gunner started playing first. He was a drummer. And I got a bass guitar. And we just kind of jammed and learned how to play the records. And, you know, clearly it, it was very helpful to have a pop, you know, a dad that was doing it. And for us, we just always wanted to do that. I think it would be the same thing as, as an athletic career, you know, coming from a legacy you saw that it was it was uh, right there and, and possible to achieve at the top level. So it wasn't a hobby for us. It was always something that we always trained for and wanted to do, but started playing in clubs when we were 12 and realized the hard way that, especially when you're playing original songs, you really have to learn the craft of it. And we were fortunate enough to, to have some people around that gave us some great advice, which was, it doesn't have, matter how many gigs you play, you really need hit songs or you're just never going to happen. And when you start a career in music, all those great songwriters are not going to give you their A-list material. You really have to learn that yourself. We kind of noticed that every band uh, that would come around, they all usually have like one ringer. You know, you'd have to wait till the end of their set. You know, what is that, uh, that adage? Local band usually equals crappy band, you know? <laughs> so we wanted to kind of rise above that and, and realize that our competition was what was in the top 10 of the Billboard charts, not what was playing down the street. And that's when everything really kind of elevated. And yeah, we started writing songs with a lot of great songwriters and learned a little bit from each one of them and really kind of hit pay dirt with just a couple of them. One, once we went out to New Jersey earlier when Bon Jovi was kind of at their, their peak with Slippery When Wet and worked with a, a friend of ours named Jack Ponte. And it didn't actually work out. We did some demos with him. We, we really learned the craft, but we got passed on by everybody in New York uh, about four years before the After the Rain experience. You know, we decided to start again for the drawing board. Gunner started playing guitar and came up front with me, which was a big deal as far as our presentation was concerned. And there were some writers in Los Angeles we really clicked with, one which wound up co-producing the record with us, ultimately. And we actually, we, we finally got our recording contract after demo after demo after demo and being kind of put on ice with the same guy at a label we were recording named John Kaladner at Geffen. We went in with love and affection just with two acoustic guitars. At that point, you know, it's really the truth. Gunnar and I were sharing a bank account. We were down to $17 in a joint bank account and literally at the end of our rope, we had nothing left to lose. And we sat this guy down with no appointment. He was pissed at that and played him the song. He listened to the whole thing. And then he just kind of looked up at us and he said, I've been waiting for you guys to blow me away with something like that and, and not listen to managers or anything like that. He just came in here and did it. And we said, well, we really had no choice. He said, yeah, you kind of did. And he picked up the phone and he said, you know, the Nelson deal's a go. Hmm. So it was kind of one of those deals. But that was kind of the beginning of it. I, mean, I think everybody mis misperceives that like our first career in coming out of Los Angeles, they think that we were part of the strip scene. Actually, Chris, we weren't. Matthew and I started about 10, 15 years earlier during the whole uh, punk thing, uh, new wave, the skinny tie bands, all that stuff. <laughs> that uh, I mean, legitimately, like it was a real scene. It was kind of like the mods and the rockers in London back in their day. You had the punkers, the dead Kennedys, the black flags, the, the germs, the vandals, all mm -hmm. that stuff. And then you had bands like uh, the Knack, 
the motels, the go-go's, you know, X, which kind of straddled the fence between the two. Those were the bands that, you know, as, as kids, Matthew and I would have to get escorted into nightclubs to go in, perform, and then come back, uh, you know, be, be let out of the club after we played. But from the time we were 12, we were doing it. And what was cool was we wound up at a Foo Fighters concert with a, a friend of ours, um, Rami Jaffe. He was in the Wallflowers. He plays keys for the Foo Fighters. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were in D.C. recently and found ourselves backstage. And they couldn't have been nicer guys. So uh, I was a fan anyways, always will be, even though Nirvana kind of crushed what we had going against right. for a while. On it. But they were nice guys, totally respectful of the two of us. And... Pat Smear walked up to Gunner and I, and he had that kind of weird look on his face. And he said, hey, I'm Pat Smear. I said, I know who you are, Pat. And he goes, I had a band called The Germs back in the day. So I clearly know who The Germs were, man. He goes, yeah, well, I wanted to say that your band, The Strange Agents, which was our, the name of our band back in the club day. <laughs> well, man, well, yeah, we had a done. <laughs> he said, you guys were playing at Madame Wong's Chinatown, and we were across the street at the punk club which was Hong Kong Cafe, and the whole band, we were dying to go over and see your guys set. We knew about you guys. We heard about the buzz, and we wanted to go across the street, but we were punkers. We couldn't be seen with new waivers. And I was like, man, that made the entire experience cool that Pat, Pat Smear and the Germs knew who we You're were right. in our high school band. You know, not so bad. Well, you know, it's um, one of those things where I have this this theory amongst like my favorite records is this a perfect album? And what does a perfect album constitute? Every song, in my opinion, has to be a A minus or better. And I think After the Rain, even 30 years beyond, is one of those records because it still holds up with the melodies and the harmony and it's heavy, but it's poppy. And it's, I mean, it really is one of those once in a lifetime records. Uh, and it's crazy to me that that was basically your first record ever uh, with just every song being as good as it was. Well, thanks, man. Well, as you know, they say that you have your entire life to write that first record and 20 minutes to write your second. <laughs> and, uh, you know, something that Matthew and I have wanted to do since we were babies. We started when we were six years old, had our first recording session when we were 12, 12 on our 12th birthday, started playing immediately uh, professionally in the L.A. clubs from that point on and cutting our teeth and, and doing five, six gigs a week, every single week. Uh, and it, it was a great time in the L.A. club scene. It was It was a little earlier than people kind of thought that we, we they thought we came out of that whole sunset strip hair metal scene that was so vibrant in the uh, in the 80s and we didn't actually we we started out a little bit earlier in the in an environment in the LA clubs where you had the punks on one side like the the germs and the dead kennedys and black flag and so on and so forth and on the other side you had the the new wavers the skinny tie band guys like the knack and the gogos and and the bangles and stuff and and Matt and I we always really admired the energy of the punkers and we loved that. And a lot of our friends were, were legitimate punks, but we also loved the melody and the, the crafting of the songs that we could find in that whole skinny tie band thing. Like so, pop guys, yeah. you know, so, you know, there were bands back then when we were cutting our teeth that were really doing a great job kind of straddling the fence of both worlds. Like X comes to mind, you know, they had great songs and that great punk energy. And I think when we started out, we wanted to do that and we, we really made a run for it. And really couldn't find any traction. We couldn't get any traction. We couldn't figure out what the, I mean, we had the dedication and we had the commitment and we realized that, you know, if you look at local bands for the most part and you're able to take a step back, you know, most local bands have one song that their fans kind of wait for throughout their entire set. 
and and get excited about. And they basically have to kind of sit through and suffer through album cuts. At least that's the way it was we were when we were coming up. So we realized, man, wouldn't it be cool if you could actually put together an entire set of nothing but the ones that people wait for? And since we had so much time and been working so long on it, uh, when we actually made a second go of putting together what would become Nelson, we realized that it had to be basically songs forward. We had to, our competition was no longer the other bands that we were playing against in the LA club scene. We wanted to actually really compete at a world-class level with the people that were in the Billboard Hot 100, hopefully the top 10. And so we went back to the drawing board that was around the time that was about a year after our, our father died or that, that year after. We were the only unsigned band in history to be the musical guests on Saturday Night Live. That was our big lick. It was booked before our dad passed away. And we were on the plane on the way back from from doing that gig on Saturday Night Live when, you know, we talked about it. And I just had this thing where I, I just thought, look, I mean, up until that point, my whole life, I'd been the drummer. Matthew had been the bass player. And I thought, you know, this would be so much stronger if the two of us could be up front singing together. And the only problem with that is I'd never played guitar in my life. At that point, I was 18 years old. But I mean, I, I think I did the same kind of thing that you would have done in that situation. You know, on one side of our family, we've got some really great athletes like our, our father, uh, our, our grandfather on our mother's side won the Heisman Trophy at Michigan. Wow. In 1940, uh, our uncle Mark, who plays Gibbs on NCIS now, was the starting quarterback at UCLA. Uh, we went to the John Wooden basketball camp. So we always had that that real competitive sort of nature to us. And we thought, OK, well, there's something to be said about concentration of, of focus and energy. and for all these guys that said they've been playing guitar for 10 years, uh, if they're lucky, they've had the instrument in their hand for an hour a day. Well, what if I do nothing but sit down for 10 hours a day for an entire year, and all I do is learn how to play guitar? Chances, I mean, it stands to reason that I have the same kind of facility as somebody who's been playing for 10 years, so to speak. And and that's what I did. And to Matt's credit, he supported it, which uh, I probably wouldn't have if the shoe were on the other foot, because I was god-awful. And, and uh, you know, the, a year later, uh, we started actually uh, cutting the tracks for the demos that would become the After the Rain uh, record and, and create that sound. And what we wanted to do was kind of like incorporate with Nelson everything that we grew up with in Southern California, which were, you know, our dad had his Stone Canyon band. So it was really the first true country rock band. So we're talking big vocals, uh, the Eagles, Crosby, Stills and Nash, Jackson Brown, Joni Mitchell, all that. That's what we grew up with around the house with us. But we also grew up with the bands that we we loved. I mean, we loved uh, Journey and Bad Company and Queen and Boston and Foreigner and all the big arena radio bands. So when you listen to Nelson, the eventual sound of the After the Rain record was a real blend of the sensibilities of that Southern California folky sort of thing that we grew up with and the attitude of the arena rock thing, because frankly, girls back then were wearing lingerie to shows and, and if you didn't have long hair, you weren't getting any action. Right. And I love this, man. I'm sitting here. Matthew and I are both on the phone with you right now having this interview. And how apropos is this? We're having an interview talking about after the rain and we're in the middle of a Tennessee thunder and lightning storm. So if you hear cracking of thunder, it's not a sound effect. It's actually happening right now. <laughs> it's not a shock rock radio show where you're playing your lightning uh, sample just to build up the drama. <laughs> I was just saying, let me ask you a couple of questions about you. you. You covered a lot of ground there. First of all, how in the hell did you guys get on Saturday Night Live being an uns unsigned band? There was a guy that worked for Lorne Michaels who was trying to be our manager at the time. And uh, he was a cool guy. His name was Kevin. And, and he had uh, been working with us. Uh, he, his day job was booking the talent 
for a lot of daytime television shows. So if, uh, you know, back then, gosh, I mean, I don't know if it was like Regis and Kathy Lee or something like that. He was the guy that was supposed to have his ear to the ground and, and pick up on bands that actually were on the rise before they were a household name. And one of his accounts was Saturday Night Live, which he said was the easiest account in the world because at that time, this is before MTV, of course, Saturday Night Live was like, was like, you know, you had a, a, a stint on Saturday Night Live. Everybody was buying your records. It was a really coveted spot. And the musical guests that were actually supposed to be on that show, something happened. I think the lead singer in the band that was booked uh, got in trouble with the law and got locked up and they weren't able to make it. And and Kevin basically was in the right meeting at the right time and said, well, you know, I've got a great idea. Let's do this. And I'm sure he used the Ricky's kids kids angle on the whole thing mm -hmm. and and stuff. And, and that helped because our dad also hosted the show his his stint hosting saturday night live is legendary i mean he, he did a skit with uh, this is the original not ready for primetime players he did a skit with dan Aykroyd and bill murray and all that stuff where it was a black and white bit where you know he was ricky nelson who got lost in all the great 50s television shows <laughs> and couldn't find him back home and uh and lauren michaels was uh, really open to the idea and it was just dumb luck that the host that week was Ron, Ron Reagan Jr., mm -hmm. president's son, and he was a family friend. And I mean, it was it was pretty crazy. But, you know, then, our, of course, our father died. And uh, and, you know, we, it was just there was so much stuff, Chris, that was going on so quickly. And we were getting attention for what we felt would probably wind up not being for the right reasons. We wanted it to be about our music, you know. Right. And so we felt that we really just needed to go back to the drawing board. And that's what we did. And and it was also cool. It was a good time to heal. I mean, during those years, learning how to play guitar, we also learned, you know, how to really have our sound and how to write in a very specific way. Because, I mean, I love melodic music. I always have. Matthew always has, too. And, and we like Attitude. But because we came from that Southern California thing, a lot of the big rock bands that we were competing with, they all came from a really heavy blues background. Like, like on our own label, for example, we had uh, Guns N' Roses was in the other wing and, and all that stuff. And you had Whitesnake, which I love that record. And all those other things were going on. But Matt and I, we, we were kind of like men without a country because coming from that Southern California folk background, there's nothing blues about any of that. You know, mm. so like, like our musical DNA doesn't come from what most rock bands draw from. You know, I mean, I, I love ACDC. I love listening to ACDC, but that straight up is a blues band, right? Right. Of course, ZZ Top loves ZZ Top. And that is, I mean, total Southern blues. And here come the Sun Sunkissed Malibu Beach Twins, Matthew and Gunner. And we come out with our record and people can't really figure out what it is because it's like, okay, it's not, it's not quite metal. And, and it definitely has the attitude of rock, but there's a lot of pop in it. But why does this not sound like anything else? that it's playing up against, especially on rock radio. And, and that's why it's been kind of difficult to, you know, find a band to tour with over the years that makes sense uh, because it's kind of a unique thing, you know, every now and again, and, and certainly not comparing us to our heroes, like the guys in, in a band like queen or a band like Boston. But when those bands came out, they really kind of blazed their own path, so to speak. They weren't, they weren't pretending to be something else. They were, treading new ground and that's what we always wanted to do with nelson and uh you know i mean it, it was an interesting thing to see happen because again all of our contemporaries 
back in the day, uh, the, the Warrants, Wingers, uh, Slaughters, all the, they're all our buddies now. They're all our friends, but they wouldn't even let us back into their club back in that day because we were, I guess, too much on the pop side of things and, uh, and, and stuff. But, you know, shoot, man, unapologetically, Matthew and I always started making music because we wanted to get chicks in our show. We didn't want to play to a bunch of guys in black T-shirts. And mission accomplished because, man, it was a great time to be in music before cell phones. Let me tell you, you had culpable deniability wherever you went. <laughs> Let me ask you a quick question for you. We had, we had uh, you mentioned when you guys were making this record that you had seventeen dollars in your collective bank account. Not to get in too much family dynamics or whatever the reason, but you come from three generations of. I mean, it's about you're the only three generation family to have number one songs between your your grandparents, Ozzy and Harriet. And then, of course, your father, Rick Nelson, and then you guys. How, how did you only have 17 bucks in your pocket? You would think that your family had lots of cash from all the, the success and, and celebrity over the last 20, 30 years prior. Well, you would think, right? I, what happened was our dad and our mom went through all that money that our father made and the stocks that were, were paid out during gotcha. the Hair in the, in the late 60s and early 70s. One yeah. word, divorce. Yeah, and then it was divorce. And the divorce went on ad nauseum. I mean, it went on forever. And a lot of people got very wealthy off of uh, the misery of that one, you know, Southern California, acrimonious divorce. So by the time our dad actually passed away, he, uh, he left us with an estate that was four and a half million dollars in debt. Oof. So Gunnar and I, to our credit, refused to declare bankruptcy or, you know, when we kind of took the helm of everything. And, you know, we felt that it was a dishonor to the family. So we struggled with it and made sure that we took care of legitimate debts. Others we fought and, and, and made sure they went away. But the end result was we just were very, very, uh, let's just say that we, we weren't left a whole lot. Financially, our father left us a shit sandwich. Gotcha. Okay. You know, that's, that's basically, and, and it's, look, I understand for the people out there, they go, Oh my God, those guys have to be trust fund kids. They got to be rolling in the dough and, and music has got to be a hobby to them look like so for so many other people i mean music was our only ticket out of what life had handed us that was the only option we're going you know off to college and they had their colleges paid for or whatever it was sink or swim for us you know and the, the nice thing and the irony of this whole thing was yeah we come from three generations the only family according to the guinness book that with three successive generations of number one hit makers in it but everybody did something that was popular and relatable to the time that they were in. And I'm happy to say that we sold millions of records to people who had no idea who Ricky Nelson was, you know, all those kids had no clue. Yeah. They could care less. So, I mean, you know, it's kind of one of those things where we were in the same situation. I suppose that so many musicians who were lucky enough to make it were in where it's like, you have this dream and you know, the other, the, the getting the day job thing, there's no dishonor in that. I get it. But uh, for us, it was that desperation of having basically gone through all of our friends that we could sleep on our couches, eating McDonald's three meals a day and just trying to squeak by and get through for that elusive record deal. I mean, times were obviously different back then, but the way you did it was you got the record company's attention. You made your demos. You hopefully got signed, made a record. Hopefully that got released and prioritized, had a hit video, and then you were a star and everything was different. It was it was never easy for for us, but I don't think it's easy, even when it appears to be easy for anybody you're seeing on TV or hearing on the radio. Everyone has got their legend. Everyone's got their personal story. You know, for us, 
fortunately God put us into this world with each other because mm-hmm. that, that was kind of like the buzz phrase around the house, no matter how th- bad things got with our mom's drug addiction or alcoholism or the divorce that was going on that we were having to live through as teenagers. We always had each other. And we always had our music. And those two things were really the true north in our compass. You know, we could have gotten distracted or affected by all of that stuff. But wanting to make music was our driving force. The second we got home from school, we were, you know, running to the to the music room and just bashing it out. And, you know, all these years later, I can honestly say, man, the only thing I've ever wanted to do in my life is make music with my brother. Right. And all of these years later, I get to do that. And I guess the people were right. You know, the twins always have each other. You know, there've been a lot of times, and I'm sure with your musical career, you can, you can relate to this. There are those days when you wake up and you just have to look in the mirror and go, is this worth it? Mm-hmm. There's so much crap that goes on to do what it is we do. A lot of hate too, you know? And then, then you get, you know, of course you get the trolls and you get all that stuff out there and, and stuff. And you go, like for me, I have these moments being a guy who loves the studio side of things where it'll be three o'clock in the morning and I'll have these moments where I'll go, do you think anybody out there really gives a shit what the kick drum sounds like on the third track of this record we're working on? Mm-hmm. And then, then, you know, years later, months later, whatever, you know, you get some random that comes up to you in an autograph line and goes, man, I really love the drum sound in that third song on that record. And you go, Oh, I guess they do. Mm-hmm. It's all worth it. I guess everything makes it worth it. And and that's what I love. And you've got to really love making music to do it nowadays. What with the money being sucked out of it and with file sharing being what it was. I mean, look, when we started making music, you know, music was the thing. You remember, yeah, you know, I mean, people used to go down to record stores, they get excited about their favorite band coming out with that new album. They pre-ordered, they go down there, there weren't anything no such thing as a listening station. You bought it based on the single you heard on the radio. You put your hard-earned money down for it. There weren't any internet sales. You actually physically had to go down there and buy it. Right. And music was really the thing. And concerts were really the thing. That was the thing that you got excited about as a teenager and a young adult was was going to a great show that was coming to town. And now it's changed a little bit. For you know, a lot of a lot of people look at music and the kids growing up look at music as like background music to the their favorite video game. In in our day coming up, that was the whole thing. That was the background music, the game, everything was the music you were making. And I really appreciate coming from that that background because still to this day, 30 years later after After the Rain, I'm even more jacked up about making music and writing great songs than ever before. And I do not have those days where if I didn't feel that way about it, Chris, there's, there's no way I'd still be doing it. Your reason why has got to be so strong to do this. And I, I think that people can feel that in your presentation and when you're talking about it and, and when you're actually doing your singing it's, it's kind of like to do otherwise. I hated going to a strip club and watching a stripper that looks like she's doing her taxes on stage in her head. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same thing when you're out there singing, man, you got to be present and you got to believe what you're singing and you, you've got to like really, truly, deeply enjoy and believe in what you're doing. Otherwise you're wasting everybody's time. Let me ask you this about, you talked about, you always had your brother to sing with for both you guys. Like I have identical twin daughters. Oh, I didn't know that, man. Yeah. Thir- 13 years old. And, and you know, they're completely different people, but there's a connection between them that, you know, obviously you guys know this, that's like no other. Did you feel that with your, with your singing and your harmonies? Cause it's very effortless between you guys locking in constantly is just being twins and growing up playing together, have something to do with that. Or did you have to do a lot of practicing? 
No, it was just honestly 100% supernatural and, and really connected spiritually. I think that's why, you know, look, we're big fans of, of like the Everlies and stuff like that. Sibling harmonies have always been a, a really important part of what we do. But right. when you're identical twins, which is also we're not the first identical twins to be professional musicians. We had great grandmothers Wow, uh, that were were vaudevillians, Hazel and Hattie McNutt. And uh, that's great. It's great. Gunner and I don't look quite as, as sexy in bloomers, but, you know, <laughs> we're, we're but, uh, you know, what's really trippy is that we'll be on stage and maybe 100 feet away from each other, 50 feet away from each other. And we will almost have kind of um, a glitch in the matrix at the same time, like a like a split second, like we'll screw up on the same exact word at the same time. We're that connected. Mm. I mean, yesterday I called to find my brother. Matt speaking. I called Gunner to to tell him that I saw something on eBay Motors or whatever. It was this really cool 1976 Shaggin wagon called the Good Time Machine, and when people were popping up <laughs> Chevy vans and stuff like that, it's completely random, just completely completely, completely obscure random thing. It's just man, I got it. Gunner's got to see this. His wife answered the phone, and I said, I just wanted to talk to Gunner. I found this really cool car on the internet. It's this van and this whole thing. And she went, Did you talk to Gunner like like a couple hours ago? I said, What do you mean? She goes, You're pulling my leg, right? I said, pull your leg about what? She said, wait a minute. She put Gunner on the phone and right in front of him said, Gunner, your brother just called to talk to you about this 1976 Chevy van with like fur on the dash or whatever. And it was the identical car, the identical picture. And we were both looking at the same thing. Wow. You know, and that was, she's really, she's, she's, I think, she, out I think she's still creeped out, but, uh, <laughs> Twin magic, man. It's got the twin magic. Yeah, she has no idea what else we telepathically share. Exactly. But she, she's, she's on her toes now. Thank you, Gunner. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Let's talk about the influence of, of John Kalodner, um and how he was able to get you signed. Because you guys, like you mentioned, had been bopping around the scene for years, playing new wave music. And now you kind of get into this. Like you said, it's, it's not heavy metal. It's not super pop. It's a combination of in between but it's just different enough that it worked at that time frame did did how did you present it to him and did he was he the one who got you guys signed finally after all these years well it was really hard it was really difficult to get john to press the 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 green button and give the career a go we actually had courted john for got three years now for the listeners out there john david kaladner you should look him up he's mm -hmm. worth looking up he's a legendary record company guy if you ever saw the aerosmith dude looks like a lady video he is the guy who turns around in the wedding dress. Yeah, with the big long beard. With the big long beard. That's that's a real guy. That wasn't. <laughs> now that's the record company guy. He's the guy that signed Foreigner at Atco. Mm. Okay. He also helmed ACDC's career. He's the guy who who got uh, Aerosmith into rehab and reformed them after years, after a decade of them not talking to each other. And then you've got Permanent Vacation and Pump. Right. And get a grip and all these incredible records. That was all John Kalodner. He's the guy that broke White Snake. Mm. He's a legendary guy. Now, the reason why we courted him was not only because we loved the, the acts that he had worked with, but we figured, okay, it's going to take a little while for us to get our career off the ground. And most of these record company guys, man, they last like a month at the label. The first time they, they, they put their stamp of approval on a particular band that they sign and it fails, they get fired. Now, Don had a long-term contract at Geffen Records, which was the top independent label in the world at the time um, because of your Guns N' Roses and White Snakes and all that stuff. And so we, we actually wanted to really go after John because he had his long-term contract there. He wasn't going anywhere. And we didn't want to be men without a country if we got halfway through develop, developing that first record 
and our A and R got guy got fired, uh, we'd be we'd be all that time would be wasted. So John had a very particular vision for the two of us. He wanted us to be the heavy metal Hollies, hmm. and we didn't know what what he really meant by that until we actually stopped being ignorant, went back and listened to it, and we realized that's basically what we were naturally, anyways. You know, so that's what we really focused on, and it wasn't until we went into his office with 17 bucks in the bank and played him love and affection, which we had just written that morning. Wow. That he, he, that he actually called business affairs and pressed the green light on the Nelson deal. And it was fortuitous because again, we were out of places to crash and we were out of uh, food to eat. And, you know, that was just the providence of God. And, you know, it just, it really, every, everything from that point on uh, really seemed to work out, you know, it was nice that, that we'd done all of our demos up to that point with a friend of ours named Mark Tanner, who had had you know, we had a solo record that that didn't do uh, all that well, but he had great song sense. You know, um, we got introduced to Mark through a music publisher friend of ours uh, who worked at AM Records, and you know we're in that that kind of no man's land if you're an untried band. You know, none of the hit songwriters want to work with you, anyways. We always, you know, songwriting was always really important to us, but we always felt that a, a real professional that we bonded with could give us some tips and tricks and, and help us hone our game. And, and we met Mark and, and we had a great chemistry with him and, you know, he wound up co-producing that first record and, and uh, co-writing uh, almost uh, all the songs, all but one on that record. Cause he got us, mm-hmm. you know, he understood with the gap the rain and more than ever and only time will tell. And, and uh, uh, you know, he just, uh, he really got what we were going for. And because we had never done anything up until that point. We had no scrutiny. No one really cared. And and since we were kind of a, we could have been a high profile signing because we were sons of, you know, you're never going to find any of those pictures, Chris, that have like John Kalaner sitting down with us in front of a desk signing the deal. Like we always did in the trades in case it laid an egg. All the people really wanted to be able to distance themselves from it. Right. Right. So we just kind of realized, well, man, if that's going to be the attitude coming out of the gate, from a lot of people and we're going to be treated as guilty until, until proven innocent. We need to put in the extra time and, and make sure that every song on that record is strong enough that it can withstand that kind of scrutiny. And we just kept on going and kept on going until we realized that we had a record that would be really hard to shake a stick at. And, and that's what, that's what we got with after the rain, we got uh, kind of like, you know, a, a record that took five years to write. And uh, I wouldn't have changed. You know, but it was also back in the day we were the last band on Geffen to release on vinyl, which I'm pretty proud of. And so, so back. And by the way, I'm sending. I don't know if you have a, a turntable, but we just remastered the After the Rain record. We're going to send you a copy. Oh, I love it. But uh, th- back then, sequencing of a record was really important. Now it's a singles thing now. But you know, your albums, your favorite albums, like when you listen to Rumors by Fleetwood Mac, it flows perfectly from the first song all the way to the end of side A, you flip it over and it continues, but it's, as, it's a whole comprehensive story through side A and side B. You know, Matthew sequenced that record, I think, in a really in a really nice way. I think it flows really, really well. And, uh, you know, you just had to think about things differently back then. Um, we're taking the same sensibilities into what we're doing now. And with the, an eye on the future, we're, we, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we're analog men in a digital world and not the other way around. <laughs> I'm glad that there weren't, you know, auto-tune plugins when we started, you know, making records. I'm I'm glad that you had to throw down on a first take because waiting for that 24 track to rewind and all that stuff took forever. Oh wow! Man. So the less the less retakes you had to do, the less uh, punch-ins you had to do, the faster your process went. 
the less uh, money you were spending, because back then you're spending $1,500 a day on an overdub room. You know, uh, the, the record budgets were 250 to a half million dollars. That's for a starting band. You know, bands were making half million dollar videos routinely. You know, it was uh, it was a completely different time. But I mean, I'm really I'm really uh, glad that we started when we did and to see all the changes in the industry and stuff. I think the important stuff to take with you is with all that stuff aside, you have to be able to sit down to be able to sit down with a couple of acoustic guitars and with your voices and get a song over on people and, and to, you know, to where they get it and they're moved by it or impressed by whatever you're going for. Uh, we come from that world where, you know, our dad was telling us, look, if, uh, if you have a new song and it doesn't translate with a couple of voices and a couple of acoustic guitars, throw it on the wood pile because all the production in the world is not going to make it sound better. Right. I'm, I'm glad that we do that. You know, we're not, you know, we never wanted to be in the business of polishing turds. <laughs> you know, uh, I think that's a really good thing. And I think that there are a lot of artists that are coming up now that don't come from that background where, you know, they, they know with Pro Tools, they can just do one crappy take and their producer is going to, you know, cut, slice, edit, tune and all that kind of stuff and get them something that's presentable. I, man, I'm just really glad that you can roll into a radio station now and uh, and sing one of your songs live. And why is it, by the way, that all radio DJs want you to sing live first thing in the morning during morning? Always. What is that about? Yeah, <laughs> come on in and sing at 7 a.m. on the banana. Do it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we've done a show the night before. That's right. You know? Exactly. <laughs> oh my god! But um, but we are really, honestly, uh, still after all these years, man, just really grateful for having the opportunity to still go out there and make music and do it at the level that we do it, and uh, and and have people still uh, come up and talk to us or meet us and stuff. Go, man, I, I really appreciate what it is you guys do, and and I'm glad you're still doing it. Let's talk about uh, about the image, because like I said, for me, hearing the band on the radio and then saying, I want to check this out and then seeing the album cover, because like, like, like you mentioned, being a, a 19 year old kid, I didn't know who the sons of Ricky Nelson were. So to me, I just saw heard this, this music and saw this image of these two guys with the super long blonde hair and, and like the cool clothes. And I mean, it was just it was just such a, a great look at the time. Was the image before the record or was the image something that you were working on told to do that's the way you guys looked walking down the street normally how did that go oh that's a, that's a great question well we started working on the music first the music was first mm -hmm. we started doing our writing but i think the image really came after we john kladner sent matthew and i over to london to write with a guy named russ ballard and russ was in a band called argent yep for the listeners out there great music out of that big song hold your head up uh, legendary stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, 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 Rod Argent was the Hammond B3 player in the uh, in the animals. And, zombies. You know, zombies, you're right. Zombies, not the animals. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it was going over there and writing with him in England. Wow. The sensibility there with pop music is very different because the image is really important to them. Matt and I were at an industry party with, uh, with our co-writer. And Russ introduced us to the top stylist in London. And Matt and I at that point had just come from working with Jack Ponte in New Jersey. And we were a hodgepodge of styles and image. And this, uh, this lady, I'll never forget the conversation. She looked at, at me and Matt and went, so what are you two going for? <laughs> like, what do you mean? She goes, well, you just got you know, all this mishmash of all this, these other people's styles. And it looks so confused. She goes, boys, do yourself a favor. Really think about 
what it is you're going for before you present yourself because you'll only be able to present yourself one time to the world for the first time. And we that's really kind of like what started the conversation. And, you know, we were students of Joseph Campbell. And uh, Joseph Campbell wrote some uh, some epic works, one called The Hero's Journey that Spielberg and company kind of pulled from for all the Star Wars things. There's a, Basically, it's an allegory that talks about the hero's journey and all this stuff. And that's when the idea for calling the record after the rain for um, for putting the image together to kind of portray that whole hero's journey thing really came from was that one conversation with that stylist in London. Mm-hmm. And we started uh, talking about it. Matt and I went down to Western Costume in Hollywood and we went through the archives and we did some research and we found that uh, like any of those eras that we were gravitating towards, uh, we just basically were looking through all the binders and stuff. We really liked um, that whole, you know, three musketeer, you know, swashbuckling kind of thing. Why, you know, the image of the, the the leggings and the jackets. And that's that's where all that stuff came from. It had nothing to do with a record company idea. They had they had nothing to do with that. Um, I have a feeling they probably in, in a very real sense would have preferred uh, we had not done that mm-hmm. because to be honest with you, Chris, I mean, Geffen wasn't really as a company. They didn't really back our band. The record company at the time was really into a little band, a band called Little Caesar. And that was their priority band with every label. Wow. You know, with every label, you're going to get um, they're going to have a financial meeting once a quarter. They're going to go, OK, we're going to put all of our radio favors and, and money into this band. And they basically waved their magic wand at a particular band. Nelson was never that band. Little Caesar. Wow. Little, little Caesar. Now, I don't know if you remember them. They did a, their first single was a cover of Chain of Fools. Yeah. And uh, Ron Young, great front man. He was in the Terminator movie, covered in tattoos, the whole thing, the whole style of those guys. It was, was absolutely great. You know, he, he basically, they put all their money and their videos and all that kind of stuff into Little Caesar. And Matt and I were kind of like treated like the redheaded stepchildren of Geffen Records. Wow. And it was really going and doing uh, a stint on MTV as VJs that really blew the whole thing out of the water. Uh, we Daisy Fuentes was going on vacation. And our manager at the time also managed Kiss and Cinderella. And his friend was one of the people that worked at MTV and she was going on vacation and somehow, I mean, it was, it was a great get because he got us in there as temporary VJs and no one was doing that whole MTV unplug thing or anything like that at the time. But Matt and I went in with a couple of acoustic guitars and we had the shtick between the two of us and the banter back and forth and the playing, you know, in and out of the commercial breaks with our acoustics and singing. That's what did it. Hmm. So, so when Geffen actually released the album, which was a few days after we got done doing that MTV stuff, the album actually sold out the first round of 75,000 copies within a couple of hours. And it took Geffen a couple of weeks to tool up their, their production and get the CDs pressed. So oh, wow. it was, it was always one of those things where, you know, Nelson was one of those projects that we had to force the industry to embrace. And it was basically a popular thing. You know, it was the kids that were calling up and back then they had dial MTV and, you know, I know much music had its own equivalent to that mm-hmm. uh, in Canada. And, and that's what actually really did it. And we figured as far as the image and the look was concerned, that when kids were flipping through that channel and back then, you know, your video stations like MTV or Much Music, those really actually were the biggest radio stations in the world. And that was the way that the kids got to learn about bands. 
And we figured, okay, well, they're flipping through the stations. And if you're lucky, you might have a second, second and a half to get their attention, to capture their attention. And so our whole philosophy was love us or hate us, you're going to know who we are. We wanted to look different than anybody else. When, when everybody else was doing black and white, spilled beer on your girlfriend videos, we wanted to have color. We wanted to do crazy shit. Like in that first video, yeah. snow is falling up and birds are flying backwards. And it's just, but we did that for a reason because we wanted people to kind of be taken aback by it and start the conversation, you know, go like, what the hell is it with these, these outfits and this long blonde hair and these backward birds and all this stuff. <laughs> and, and it really actually worked. And we thought it was going to be kind of like one of those things that the image was going to shock people enough to get our toe in the door. But if we were lucky, it was going to be our songs that kept us in the room. And fortunately it was a gamble that worked. And that's how it always works. It's funny though, your hair, like I said, I, I was, I was like, Oh man, this is what a great look this is. So I had long hair at the time, but I, I dyed it blonde like yours, and then it fried my hair, and I ended up with this really shitty, much shorter hair than I started out with because of you guys and your long hair, uh, which really pissed me off, so thanks for that. <laughs> but <laughs> was, <laughs> How long did it take for you guys to get your hair that long? Because it was, it was amazing. Oh, okay. it was absolutely breathtaking. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you know Actually, gr growing our hair out was one of these things that happened way back when we were we were in New Jersey. We went to dinner with uh, with our friend Jack and one of the guests uh, it was with Dennis Berardi, who owned Kramer Guitars mm -hmm. at the time. And Eddie Van Halen had just signed with Kramer. And, uh, and that was like the big guitar company. And it was right there in Neptune, New Jersey. And it was Dennis Berardi and our friend Jack and Richie Sampora from Bon Jovi. Mm hmm. And they had just released the first single off of Slippery When Wet. And we were sitting down to dinner and, you know, Richie, in a very Richie way, looks over at me and Matthew and says, well, you know, if you want to be in rock and roll, you're going to have to grow your hair out. We're like, what? what? He goes, yeah, you know, you're going to have to grow your hair out. I mean, your hair is way too short for people to take you seriously. And I was like, all right, well, we'll show you. And I guess we, <laughs> I guess we did, but that was the germ of the idea. Richie Sambora did it. So let's talk about when the record came out and we mentioned that Love and Affection goes to the number one and suddenly this, this new band Nelson is everywhere. Great. Such a cool video. Same with After the Rain and More Than Ever. And some of you guys are the top band in the country in a lot of ways. So how did things go for you guys at that point in time as far as your fame and celebrity going from $17 in the bank to having a number one song? Well, I mean, we never felt any different, but it was really interesting to me that, that okay, when we got ready to go to New York to film our first MTV stint, uh, before the release of the record, we stopped by the Sherman Oaks Galleria, and, man, I had to buy socks and underwear for the trip, so we did it, and that was, everything was fine. Went to New York. They broadcast what we did. We got back to L.A., and two days after we got back, we had our first record signing at the Licorice Pizza in the same mall at the Sherman Oaks Galleria, which is, by the way, the mall that they filmed Fast Times at Ridgemont High in. Right. Very cool place. That's that's basically in high school and junior high. That's where Matt and I used to hang out after school. Mm -hmm. So two days after we get back from New York and doing that, we we get met by our record company guy uh, in the back alley behind the thing, and he's absolutely panicked. So what's going on? And he said, well, the LAPD is here. They want to shut down the mall. Too many kids showed up. Hmm. And he's, I mean, he literally looks like he's jumping out of his skin. He's freaking out. 
we're like, oh, come on, man. Are you, come on. You're, you're pulling our leggings. And then, I don't know. Seriously, I've never seen anything like this. And they smuggled us in the back. And all four tiers of the mall were completely packed with kids waiting for us to do the autograph signing. It was lit. And, and I felt as a human being, no different at all. It's like I'm the same guy that had to buy socks and underwear a week ago in the same place. And, and now they want to shut down the mall. This is insane. And, and, and the only difference was the television component. That was it. But as, as, as a human, I'm the same guy, you know, and I found that success, especially uh, quick success like that, and it didn't really change me. I still had the same work ethic and stuff, and I was there doing a job. It just seemed to change everybody around me. Mm-hmm. You know, they say that, you know, I mean, I don't know when you caught your first lick what it was like for you. Man, I never realized how many cousins I had. All of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. How many people you went to school with? Exactly right. It's like, no, it's like, I, I, yeah, that chick. Oh, I remember you. You said no when I asked you out. <laughs> you know, it's that, that kind of thing. But, um, you know, the, the world, when, when you're actually um, the one everyone's looking at uh, in the moment and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's a different way to, to, to live and stuff. And fortunately, again, I've always had my brother to keep me grounded. And, and he's had, you know, me vice versa to do that. And, and, you know, the one thing I do regret from that first tour, I was so focused on doing a great job of always having my voice in full form of always being able to run the crowd of always doing that. I was so focused on doing that, that I didn't allow myself to relax enough to really enjoy the ride as much as I could have. That's the one thing I would have done differently is I, I, I mean, now at my age, I would look back and kind of go, or if I were caught up in it again, I would go, my God, none of this stuff is real. And boy, isn't this a blast. Let's take advantage of it and have fun with it while we can. You know, because um, as my dad always said, a career is not just like life. It's nothing more than a series of comebacks. Hmm. And some days you work and some days you play. During that whole time with Nelson at the very beginning when it caught a lick, before grunge and before Nirvana happened and changed the landscape, it was a, a, just a surreal existence. You know, Matthew and I couldn't go anywhere in public together. You know, we were out on tour. You know, we had a day off or something, and one of us wanted to go to the mall or to a movie or something like that. We'd have to go individually because, you know, one of us going, people would go, you know, with our hair up in a hat, oh, look at that idiot trying to be one of the Nelson twins. If the two of us were together, it really was a, a, a security issue. So, you know, of course, that stuff comes and goes. But being able to be a part of our industry at a time when things like that were actually happening, you know, like we were out the same year that New Kids on the Block was having a success. We actually outsold New Kids uh, in merch by 30 percent. Wow. And that's pretty great. But, you know, very, very, very rarely uh, are you able to to have that kind of success where you go out in front of 25,000 people a night and uh, most of them are female. And you have those moments where you're singing and they're singing the words back to you from the crowd and you kind of go. God, man, it's a far cry from being in the hayloft, you know, above the, the horses and stuff. And, uh, you know, you're having that, that old Labrador there in the corner on a hot day, always farting while you're trying to rehearse. Right. It's, it's a very, very different thing, you know, but that's what I love about this business. Uh, every day is different. Every minute is different. Every year is different. I couldn't be the, if I were the kind of person that needed to go to the same job every single day, do the same task in the same environment, I would go insane. You know, I, I, I can't do that. I'm too much of a of an entrepreneur. I'm too much of a guy who 
who, who gets fired up by the differences of every single day, uh, both feast and famine. I just, I love the whole process. Let's, let's talk about a little bit about the videos that you guys had gun because it was such, it was such great stuff. Like I said, very original. Um, I think you mentioned the, the, the backwards th- uh, tricks that you used in love and affection and kind of the spiritual Indian quest and after the rain, a, a, a live version of more than ever, which was different for the record. I mean, all that stuff was very creative. It was cool because when you're actually making videos, especially when you were making videos back in that day, the way you made your videos was really how you expressed yourself. And uh, the, the good thing about not having any success before your first video is that no one cares at the label. No one's breathing over your neck. They're not telling you what you should and shouldn't do because they're not expecting you to do anything with your career anyways. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it gave us a lot of free reign. And we did some interviews on that first video, again, with the philosophy being we want it to be absolutely striking visually. You know, we want it to be different than anything. Everybody else is doing black and white. We want to do Technicolor. Mm-hmm. That's what we wanted to do. So we had to pick the right team to do it with. And we picked these two guys, uh, Jim Fla- uh, Jim Yukich and Paul Flaherty. And these are the two guys that at the time were doing really, really cool uh, videos that were, they had a little bit of, of mirth to them and comedy and they didn't take themselves too seriously. Uh, a lot of the Phil Collins videos were done with these guys and the Mike and, Mike and the Mechanics videos. There was always kind of like a little storyline going through. And they were the guys that we picked because we sent that first song out to about 10 different production teams that were the A-list teams in L.A. And those were the guys who, when they did a, a presentation and a couple of sketches, we went, man, these guys have really paid attention to the clothes we want to wear and and the sound of the music. And they were just really honestly the right fit. And we used Jim and Paul for the first two videos. We used them for Love and Affection and for After the Rain. For more than ever, we uh, did a live video down at the Olympic Auditorium. And the record company insisted that we shift gears at that point because the goal at that point in our career was to sell concert tickets. The first two were to sell records. The second, uh, the third one was to sell tickets. We put tickets out for sale after the second video and the tickets didn't really sell well. So they put us together with the production team that did the Bon Jovi videos. Wayne Isham was the cat who did the More Than Ever video. And the goal for that was just to show people that it wasn't just a studio band, that we actually did have a, a live show. and we, we put a lot of attention on that. And the audio track that you get on the More Than Ever video is actually us live. We've rolled up the mobile truck from the record plant and the backing uh, music, that was us live. It wasn't all doctored up or anything like that. So for kids to want to hear and see what Nelson would be like if they wanted to come down and see the show. That was their first glimpse of getting to do that. We put the tickets back on sale for the tour and we sold out the first 45 dates in uh, theaters Hmm. within a couple of minutes. And then we had to start doing the bigger venues and stuff. But man, it was really a whirlwind. Again, up until uh, Nirvana was discovered on our own label (laughs) and the world changed forever. You're talking about those, those, uh, those theater shows and, obviously following your band i don't really recall you really opening for anybody most of the stuff was just headlining on your own were bands afraid to take you out or, or you didn't really you mentioned earlier that it was hard to find a band to fit with musically to go out with i mean i think it was a i think it was a matter of disrespect to be honest with you and discounting us i don't think you know the image was so strong with the way we looked uh, the the clothes we wore and, and the statement we were making that the bands that 
were still in Metal Edge magazine that would be the academics that we would normally go on tour with. Again, the the Cinderella's, uh, Slaughter's, Wingers, Warrants, Poisons. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't think that we were tough enough. They thought that we would be bad for their image. So, again, it's back to that whole guilty until proven innocent thing. Uh, we we had to go out and headline because the, the choice was, I mean, no one would take us out. So it was either stay at home when you had the number one album in the world or, right. you know what, just ratchet up your sacks and go out and do it yourself. And it, there was no ego involved. In it. it really honestly was because we didn't have a choice. So we, we had to start, uh, you know, with the, with the whole headlining thing. You know, I remember, too, that what happened for us was we were not given any tour support by Geffen. Really? None. We had to invest all our, uh, well, there's a reason why David Geffen's a kajillionaire, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, but he, he just, um, he, we were forced to actually prove that we were the real deal all the way across. And Gunnar and I, of course, we've done that, you know, our whole lives just for other reasons. But the fact was they wouldn't give us any money. So we decided to do a merchandising uh, deal, take an advance and reinvested all of that into the tour, every penny of it. Hmm. I mean, we had a little bit of fun, you know, what happens when you get your first taste of money, but we'd kind of already seen the pitfalls of that. So we didn't get completely stupid. And we're always told, Hey, you got to reinvest in yourself, got to reinvest in yourself. The reality of looking back on two years of that whole thing from the promotion to the, the in-store signing stuff to the resulting tours was that the people that were telling us to invest, frankly, kind of maybe thought, okay, well, worst case scenario, it's a flash in the pan. We're going to make a kajillion dollars off these guys. Mm-hmm. Gunnar and I, you know, our aim was true. And we truly felt like we were investing in ourselves. And we were always told, okay, you're going to get them on the second tour. That's when you're going to make your money. Not this one, next one. So spend all your money on this, build up your brand, build up your career. And frankly, kind of had the um, the rug pulled out from under us by, by those same people uh, later on when it served them. So we learned a lot from that, which we'll get on in, in a second. But uh, I remember having Winterland merchandise and, you know, for a while there, Gunnar and I, yeah. we were selling as many, you know, I told, I told yeah, him. we were doing crazy business. But I also remembered seeing a bunch of bags filled with $20 bills, like literally grocery bags filled with 20s when I went out one night in the, in costume, like I put on a disguise just to see what was going on. And there, there were there were millions of dollars that were skimmed off the top of what we were doing. No matter how many t- times we tried to look through the books or whatever, it just was what it was. But at the same time, the stuff that we did get, maybe we might not have gotten financial remuneration or all the you know big houses or whatever. But man, I would have done that all over again for the experience that we had through the whole thing. I mean, we literally were at the top, top of the mountain. I was in San Antonio a couple of years ago. I had a couple of drinks walking back to the hotel and I, I walked past the guy with a Nelson after the rain shirt, concert shirt. I don't know if I demanded it, but I, I, I procured a deal where I switched shirts with him. I don't know what shirt I was wearing. <laughs> I, I took the shirt off my back. I'm like, dude, I got to have that shirt. He's like, okay, Chris Jericho, take my shirt. So <laughs> Love it. there you go. My throat, Chris Jericho. <laughs> So when you're talking about, and you met, you kind of alluded to this, Matt, you're talking about the success of After the Rain, how huge it was, and you guys were very successful tour-wise, and it was it was always the big question of where is the second record, and finding out about it years later. But for your guys' standpoint, when you started working on the on the follow-up to After the Rain, suddenly once again, Nirvana comes and, and grunge comes and kind of changes the whole musical landscape, but. It wasn't that much later. I mean, it was only 91, 92. Did you guys do a follow-up very quickly after? 
We we did, and that got shot down by the label. The follow up was a record called Imaginator. Yeah, and uh, Imaginator was was really uh, Matthew's initial vision. It was a statement. It was a concept record, and it was a statement about uh, the media and how the media brainwashes you. You know, brainwashes you and controls you and does all stuff. So, you know, geez, it wasn't that that was prophetic or anything. <laughs> but uh, we did make it. But at the time, we knew we were in trouble when we we went out for like 13 months on that After the Rain tour, and we came back home to our hometown of Los Angeles, and we went down to visit all of our friends at our label. And we walked in, and everybody at the label was different. Oh, wow. Everyone was 18, 19 years old, wearing flannel. They were from Seattle. I remember I pulled into the, into the parking lot to go have a meeting with the, the now new head of Geffen because David Geffen had sold his company. All the powerhouse A&R guys had gone their separate ways. And I remember walking inside and I ran into a guy named Tony Berg, an A&R guy there who was really into that whole you know, alternative thing. And uh, he literally looked at me and went, what, you guys are still here? Oh, wow. And I went, oh, Oh. That's how this is going to go. Yeah. And uh, that was a harbinger of things to come. So uh, the problem was we had sold too many records at Geffen to be let go. And we delivered a, that Imaginator record, which I was frankly pretty proud of. The artistic statement might not have been sonically the best thing we've ever done, but it clearly got the point across about what it was like being actually in that that media driven thing where, you know, you catch fire and they love to build you up because they really love to tear you down. And that whole thing and, and kind of seeing the the fact that there really is a, a certain thing, you know, people are really talking about it now in certain circles, but the whole element of brainwashing people to consume. And Gunnar and I were at the, in the middle of that and really kind of, you know, fortunately for us, you, you know, we weren't high all the time and we were very lucid and kind of grew up paying attention to things. So we had to make, as we were artists, we had to make a statement of it and it terrified the label. And they said, absolutely not. We're not releasing this. And if you want another album with us, you're going to have to go back in the studio and start all over again. And that took basically that whole process took, which first of all, it was shattering because we didn't want to change what we had done. Yeah. And we wound up making an album called Because They Can that was a complete 180 degree turn from that, which was basically Southern California country rock album. Yeah. You know, so artistically speaking, we went to two different extremes and it was nice to to release a record but I, again we had another one of those moments that uh it was a week before that record was finally released what became the second release which was because they can or there's some great moments on that too john boylan produced it and uh, the head of the label at that point said listen he walked up to, to me in, in the hallway and said i just want to tell you just so you're not surprised that uh, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to kill your record. It's never going to succeed. So I just want you to be prepared for that. It was almost like, here's this monster telling me that. And I literally said to him, you understand that we're like humans, right? We're like people and we have dreams and we have families and people that work with us and count on us. And are you serious? This is a joke, right? It's a bad joke. Yeah. You know, five years later, this, now you're going to tell us that no matter what we do, you're going to tank us. And he said, well, I just thought you should know said, what's what? So I could prepare to paint houses for a living. What, this is what I do. This is my life. Why did he say that? Because he was an asshole. Oh, okay. I, I think he honestly, was also all about, he said, well, you guys, this is the same guy actually that was promoted president of the label. I have to say this. We had played at the Universal Amphitheater. He was backstage when Gunnar and I had, uh, you know, sold this place out. I think it, it held something like 8,000 people or whatever. Yeah. 
he was sitting backstage with people going completely berserk. Uh, it was the hottest ticket in town saying to everybody that would listen, I just don't understand this. I don't get why this is happening. I just, I'm sorry. I just don't get this. Mm-hmm. So it was his moment to crap on us. I have no idea where that guy is right now, but that's kind of what, you know, that's, that's the music business. He's, pain, he's painting houses. <laughs> he's painting your house right now. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I, I was working a lot in Japan at that time and I was always going to hang out at Tower Records and in, in Shinjuku and all those type of places. Of course, none of them exist anymore. Well, and I have, I bought because they can and Imaginator at that time from 95, 96 Awesome. Love them both. Love them both. Very cool. Two great album covers. Especially because they can, the two dogs with the long blonde wigs. You know, you know what I love about that? We got the best bad review in our lives. It was actually. a Final Tap review. This it was, was great. great. It was almost as good as the review for Shark Sandwich. <laughs> yeah. And it was, uh, it was in People Magazine, and it was, Nelson, because they can, maybe they shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that awesome? How can you deny that one? The best one we ever got when, was when we played a, a real intense metal festival in England called Bloodstock, and our review was Fozzie was as heavy as a as a head of lettuce. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <So there you go. laughs> but, uh, but but like I, like you said, you could see those two those two records, and obviously because the cans are much more of that Stone Canyon, California, Southern California sound. Great tunes on it, and then imagine there's a little darker, great tunes on it as well, but. How does it feel like when you put so much time into your record, like we all know that this is the best thing we've ever done. And the record company goes, make a whole new record. Yeah. I mean, what a horrible feeling that must've been. It's, it's soul crushing. When we actually sat down to play them, Imaginator, they literally stood up and walked out after a couple of songs. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it was, that was a, that was an interesting moment. You know, the thing too, looking back on it though, I still think that I had a little bit of that punk rock thing that got, I got in the clubs in the seventies with me, which is, you know, we, we had be, we had made a lot of money for them. You know, we probably made about $25 million at that point. Yeah. And I think, you know, quite frankly, David Geffen actually was quoted as saying Nelson's over and they're just costing me money at that point. So they had already made their mind up. The bottom line though was, was that it's like anything. Once you have, you know, a product where you think, okay, we can control these guys and this is what they are and, and stuff. And, and you let them know really quick. Oh, oh, no, no, you don't, you don't get it. We can do this anywhere. This is our art. This is what we're doing. And you might even, you know, keep it from selling a lot of records, but it's not going to stop us from doing what we do. And the first thing that we did, you know, is a, a small victory, but you can understand this as an athlete and as a musician too. Sometimes, even if you release one album and somebody calls you up and says, Hey man, good job on that. It's worth the whole that you went through. And that's what we did. We, we formed our own little label called stone Canyon. And the minute we got off of our deal with, with uh, Geff and DGC, that was the first thing that we released. And that's what you bought. It was actually with a Japanese label. Gunnar, what was it over there? It was um, well, universal. We went, to, we, went, we went to JVC Victor first. That's it. Yeah. And then, uh, and then the little work with MCA as well, because what we, we realized as business guys, we kind of went, okay, well, you know, when you go overseas, let's say you're signed to a U.S. label at the time we were signed to Geffen and they've got a roster of, of acts that they're also releasing, let's say in Japan, let's use that as an example. There is no Geffen in Japan, but they've done a deal, a licensing deal with somebody who already has a presence over there. Like in our case, the affiliate for Geffen over in Japan at the time was MCA. 
So you go to all those dinners, you go to the parties with those people. Of course, they pass out business cards ad nauseum mm-hmm. and, and stuff. And we kept all those business cards. So when we came back from doing promotion years later, when it looked like it wasn't going to work out with Gethin, the first thing we did was directly contacted all of those people in Japan that we had socialized with, had made money for, and asked them if they wanted to go direct with us. And they did. Hmm. And that's what got us through the years of grunge. You know, instead of having to go get a job at Guitar Center, we we actually just started doing uh, direct deals with our own independent label, with our new records. With the Smart. It was fortuitous. And we kept some really great friendships going. And then, uh, of course, the cell phone really came to prominence and uh, prominence and uh, no one was really spending the kind of disposable income as teenagers on records like they were spending money on cell phones. And we thought that was crazy. But, you know, they were two years ahead of the curve in the States. And sure enough, they were right. But, you know, you have to be flexible and you have to pivot. You yeah, have to you really able. do. You have to be able to pivot. And I, you know, the two of us, I'm really this is Gunner here. I'm really the one that's guilty of hanging on to things a little too long when they're not working. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I'm really about being tenacious, but you know, I, I think I'd probably be a little more successful in my career if I were able to, to see the future a little more quickly and embrace it uh, even quicker. Well, like you said, there's also that little punk rock element too, where it's like, these guys are going to do what we want to do. And that's just the way it is, you know, pretty much, pretty much. That's no, what absolutely came down to that. Yeah. But it's what makes me a difficult person in real life. <laughs> As we start to wind down here, I just want to get your thoughts, uh, quick thoughts on a couple of the tunes on the record. Like we said, 30 years later, we've talked a lot about love and affection. How about uh, the second track on the record? I can hardly wait. That's such a great tune. Thank you. That was just one of those things that we wrote in a writing session with Mark Tanner. I remember bouncing. We played. That was complete tennis, wasn't it? Just playing it back and forth. Mm. And I think what happened was Gunner had this great little guitar from Steinberger back at the time. These really, really weird looking graphite guitars and it had no head, no, no head on it, no headstock, no headstock on it. It was made out of graphite. But this particular one and I got a bass like this, too, was very rare because it had something on it called a trans trem or a transposing tremolo. And you could actually with a, with a certain gauge of strings that was made for the guitar, double ball strings. But it had to be absolutely perfectly set up. But you could actually change, transpose the entire guitar up, I think, uh, two and a half tones hmm. or three tones and down, I think, more than that. Like, and keep all the strings in pitch. And keep all the strings with, with good tension. Oh, wow, yeah. Good tension and in pitch. So when you hear the beginning of, of that song, you know, it's kind of, it's a little bit higher uh, and they're definitely open strings and he's kind of finger picking it or whatever. That kind of inspired the whole, the whole song, I think, honestly, was was that. And we also envisioned having a song that we could open our set with. And ironically enough, we didn't open our set with that song. But it was, if you think about it, kind of got in every little musical shot, including a breakdown section in the middle where I grab a fretless bass and we kind of stretch out a little bit. More kind of like, a, yeah, almost like, almost like a 70s rock kind of vibe on that tune. And it let the band show off a little bit. So, I mean, I, I love that song. It's one of my favorite songs to play. So, you know, I can hardly wait. Yeah, I don't know why he loves that part. <laughs> Whenever Nelson does a show, we always do it. We always do it. Yeah, you guys had a great band at that time frame too with Bobby Rock and, and, and Brett Garson and Paul Merkovich. It's just total virtuosos all across the board. Monster players. I remember when we did wind up going out on tour with, uh, it was Cinderella and Lynch Mob. It was like Nelson was in the middle there. It was really funny. I think, um, honestly, it was actually a smart thing because we, we brought in the girls, but we were big fans of those other two bands, but they weren't exactly easy on us. Hmm. We actually, we did better 
in merch than than the other guys. But I'm sure. Bottom line was, you know, it was one of those typical, you know, your stage starts to shrink, they take PA away from you kind of deal. But we had such an intense band. It was, like you mentioned, the band they really were great musicians, and we would go into anything. They still are, and we knew that they were. Honestly, for a while there, and you got to have this this feeling. We had the best rock and roll band in the world for about two years, and we knew it. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget that time when um, Gunner was a huge George Lynch fan, and and he walked up to George before our first show on that tour. We had just come off of headlining our own little theater tour, and we're so pumped about it. And Gunner walks up to George Lynch and said, "Hey, George, I'm Gunner Nelson. I just wanted to say, you know, it's a pleasure, an honor playing with you." And he looked at him and went, "My record company wouldn't give me tour support when they heard you." on the on the bill and he walked away and we thought wow this is going to be a fun 40 dates <laughs> but the funniest part was that that first show i'll never forget he was at the side of the stage you know trying to to see if we had the goods and he watched our guitar player brett garson play now brett is literally a freak show yeah. and i've played with all kinds of unbelievable players. I mean, I played for 14 years doing music for the American Music Awards and Billboard Awards with my friend Phil X, who's the first chair in Boston now. And Phil is a freak show too, but Brett was a different level. Brett, I never heard him in 13 months play a wrong note, and he always did something different every night. He was just, he was the best guitar player I've ever played with, and we played with James Burton and guys like that. He was a monster. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And George Lynch... After seeing that show, he it was like the, the ice melted. We became really good friends. Gunner and I actually sang on his solo record. He did uh, Sacred Groove, right. and we did We Don't Own This World. And and uh, he followed Brett Garson around like a puppy dog, saying, how did you do that? Just show me that. Show me that again. You know, it was like one of those things like, right. oh, we're all in the same brotherhood. And, you know, cut the shit. Let's go have a good time and put on a good show. So it actually worked out really well. But again, back to those musicians it was nice to be able to go into a gunfight you know with barrett 50 calibers on your back i mean we knew that we were going to do fine it's always great to have low expectations a because of the way you look and the music you play and then just go in there and just destroy it that's awesome (laughs) oh oh, yeah you know kick their ass and leave them bleeding (laughs) Uh, a couple more i remember when you guys did the arsenio hall show you played it's just desire and that's the fastest tune on the record uh, you know, that's a little bit more of a, of a metal tune for sure. Yeah. I think we wanted our little bit of a um, hot for teacher, yeah. you know, wanted the teacher. So that's what that was. <laughs> Who doesn't want a piece of the teacher? I still want a piece of the teacher. Yeah. <laughs> it was, um, that, that's kind of what that, sh- that, that was for, you know, let Bobby rock kind of open up with a double kick thing and, and stuff. And, and again, another great song live, you know, it, it's really easy for Gunner and I as song guys and guys that want our vocals to shine, to kind of live in that mid tempo. You know what I mean? And to have some heaters is really important for a show, but especially, I think, for for Gunner and I. And that's one of those songs, too, that was so fun with that band to get to stretch out. And, and God, Brett's playing so fast. Brett Garson was playing so quick in that song. It sounded like a clarinet. <laughs> and he just never put a note wrong. I mean, the guy was he. This is a guy who grew up on a farm in the middle of the Australian outback and they raised sheep. Oh, wow. He was in a shed out in the back of his of his farm. He had a couple of records on a turntable that he inherited from his father. One was Alan Holdsworth. And one was Alan Holdsworth. And so he thought everybody played like Alan Holdsworth. So he just started doing that that fusion stuff. I mean, this is before the internet again. You got to remember, you know, right. you, had a, you had a vinyl LP and you had two of them and that was it. And he was in the remote part of Australia. And what a cool thing. He wound up learning how to play to Alan Holt's records, thinking that that's how everybody did it, and then sent in a cassette tape because they were looking for a guitar player for John Farnham, who's their version of 
Bruce Springsteen in Australia. I mean, he's like a national treasure. Mm. And when they got this cassette, all he said, he said a little note saying, if you know anybody that wants a guitar player, I'd love to play for him. They heard what he sent and they flew him in. And he had never played in front of people in his life and was just this savant, this unbelievable player. And when we brought him over to America, you know, we saw a live show that John Farnham had done and said, that's the guy. He sounds completely different than anybody else, you know? Everybody was trying to be Eddie Van Halen or Slash, and he didn't sound that way. And it really lent itself to the music that we did, too. That was a really good choice. What a cool band when it came together. What about Bits and Pieces? That's such a such a hooky tune. I'm surprised that wasn't a single at some point. You know, it's funny that you say that. We That was one of the contenders for the first single. Really? It really was. And it was, especially was when Love and Affection, you know, Gunnar and I decided we had to do that song over again. And, uh, you know, when the first mix didn't work, I don't know if Gunnar told you all of that stuff. He didn't. He didn't mention that. Bits and Pieces was, was a contender. And the, the irony there is that when Love and Affection wound up going out first and blowing up, Bits and Pieces kind of just got forgotten, you know, because we, we had to follow up then Love and Affection. And After the Rain was the natural choice. And then more than ever, because we wanted to kind of show the live thing. Oh, it was ballad time. So Bits and Pieces just basically, unfortunately, went from being the first choice to just a really great song in the album. And I'm happy you said that because it's, um, you know, I get a lot of people that, that say they, they love that song. I still love that song. Very folky, though, you know, but a cool song. And once again, it's number nine on the track list, you know, that, that just to show how strong the record is, is what you talked about earlier. So uh, and then the last thing, obviously, is Will You Love Me? And it's interesting because you have a couple other songs um, throughout your career and you mentioned queen a few times they've got that queen type of vibe to it like nobody wins in the end has that as well but will you love me is almost a little bit proggy at, at parts yeah will you love me was one of those things where gunner and i had a writing session with a guy named brad bailey in hollywood and um i don't even know how we hooked up with brad bailey but he was a super sweet guy uh i just remembered had a really nice vibe gunner and i pretty much brad was good for about 10 percent of that song but i remember when we, we we started, Gunner actually came up with a guitar lick on it, and the song was written pretty much about about that. And it was pretty early; it was before we got our recording contract. I remember it was on our original demos. I remember sitting next to uh, with Gunner. We were on a plane ride to Australia in 1988. We were hanging out with our friends in the Little River Band uh, for the opening of World Expo in 1988 in Brisbane. And on the way over, we somehow managed to sit next to in, in coach. <laughs> uh, the the uh, the divinals. So it was Chrissy Amplett and Mark McEntee from the divinals, mm. and we we spent twelve hours talking to the divinals on the way over. And Mark wanted to hear our demos, and of course we had a cassette player, a Walkman, and played them. Will you love me? Was was the first one on the on that on that demo tape. He loved it. We had that memory with it. I remember when it was time to pick the songs for the album. You know, the co-producer Mark Tanner really fought to not have that song on the record, and Gunner and I really fought to have it on there. We loved it. We thought it would be yeah, good Because it was the only one that he wasn't involved in writing. He wasn't involved in writing. Oh, right, of course. <laughs> That's, yeah. And um, the weird thing was, I remember we played uh, a homecoming gig in Los Angeles. It was the first time at the Universal Amphitheater, and Brad Bailey was there, and he was so happy. I mean, we had given him, he, he was a, a guy that tried to get it going and couldn't, and this was a monster hit for him to say, hey, I've got a song on the Nelson album. And... I remember he came with his wife and stuff and um, and Brad unfortunately passed away about four months after that gig in a traffic accident. Mm. And I just remember thinking, you know, that's one of those mitzvahs. That's one of those God shots that sometimes, you know, doing the right thing and fighting for something and fighting for a guy that, you, you know, you had a good memory for, you know, when he wrote it. 
it comes back around. I mean, I'm, I'm happiest about that, that Brad actually got that, that awesome. He got to spike the ball, you know? Well, I mean, dudes, what a, what a monumental accomplishment. Do you have anything planned for the 30th anniversary to celebrate? Well, this whole COVID thing is kind of throwing a wrench in the works, hasn't it? Yeah, it sure has, man. It's almost like you almost like you have to hold it off for the 31st year anniversary. Well, that's what we the, the official word we got back from the parent label who actually wound up absorbing Geffen and, and things got sold is actually one of the biggest labels in the world now. It's Universal Music Group. And our friends over there have already been contacting us and talking to us about doing something for the 30th anniversary. And they'll probably be coming out next year. They said that because of the COVID thing, industry wide, people are kind of getting a hall pass. You know, as far as that, and they're getting they're getting that extra year. So yes, the answer is yeah, we're going to do that. We've got the tapes that we actually recorded going to do that more than ever video at the Olympic Auditorium with the mobile truck from from the record plant. We actually found those recently. Oh wow! And so we're going to mix that into an official, I mean, a, a first ever live record. And so that'll get done, and we're probably going to do a definitive greatest hits record as well that pulls from from the albums through our, our career uh, from from Peace Out, from uh, Lightning Strikes Twice as well, and put together something that uh, we can kind of point out and go, you know, that marks the first 30 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're looking at doing that. We're, you know, it's kind of cool because of the people over at Universal seem to be pretty pumped about it. And again, this COVID thing has kind of changed the rules for now, but, um, but they're enthusiastic about it. So I, I would say you can expect something in the first quarter of next year. Last question. What's your favorite song on After the Rain? Oh, Ooh. okay. Let me see. <laughs> That's kind of like, okay, pick your favorite okay, child. Of course. Yeah. I'm going to screw around Matt here. I'm going to have to say love and affection because of all the milestones that it was in my life from the, the door kicker that finally got our recording contract to our first number one, to the fact that we actually re-recorded the song after recording it in the studio twice with two different sets of producers. The third time was a charm. I mean, we just wouldn't let that song go away and as good as we were to it it's been good to us so i'd have to say love and affection okay that's math the answer final answer final answer final answer who was it was it it was always a rumor that was about like cindy crawford is that true well i got a chance to meet her and and hang out when we played the mtv rock dog softball game and and we were talking to each other for a little bit and when i was on the the cinderella tour with my brother i remember you know we were the second band on that bill and kind of treated like pond scum by them and (laughs) Uh, I remember their production manager, Charlie Hernandez, came backstage. And I remember uh, we were, we'd all, everybody had been, you know, getting cleaned up after the show and stuff. It was like a locker room scene. And the, the production manager says, uh, Matt, Cindy Crawford is on the phone for you in the production office. <laughs> and it's like the record goes like, Rrr. and all the band like looked at me. And the guy had this weird look on his face. I said, dude, what did you say to her? He goes, I just thought it was some wacky fan, man. I started really messing with her and asked her questions about Richard Gere and gerbils and stuff. I said, oh. <laughs> and so I went in the office and she was laughing. She had a good, she had a good, you know, she's like, man, you must get a lot of people trying to find you and stuff. I go, well, you know, anyway, she was nice enough. It's just, we ran out of things to talk about very quickly, unfortunately. So she was better to look at than to talk to. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> How about you, Gun? Favorite song on the record? I'm, I'm going to say Only Time Will Tell. Oh, nice. Only Time Will Tell was my favorite one. Um, I love the segue, the musical bit that goes into it that Paul came up with. Yeah. And I thought that was beautiful. And I I like everything about that. That particular song was actually written for a a best friend relationship. It wasn't really even a romantic song. It wasn't intended to be that way originally. Hmm. 
I really actually kind of love the way that one came together. Um, it was the first time I was ever in a recording studio with a real string section. Oh, wow. Playing, playing our music. And, you know, there's just one of those things as a writer, when you actually go in and you've got like a moment like that, then this was, this was the A room at Cherokee recording studios, a legendary rock room in Los Angeles, big room. Uh, where they've recorded, you know, Sinatra in and stuff. I mean, it's just, it just a lot of, a lot of history there. And I remember walking in as a 19 year old kid and hearing a string section, a full orchestra set up to play a song that I had a hand in writing for the first time. <laughs> and I remember it was a visceral, I understand why orchestras, why symphonies have been such a big part of our history as human beings because it, it, if you're in the same room with that it literally it, it hits this chord inside you i just started to weep it was like i know it makes me sound like a total wuss but it's it was one of those moments where it was like so this is what it's all about i understand this is bigger than words it's bigger than anything you can't really describe it and and that was really kind of a defining moment for me you know as a musician and a, and a writer composer person not to sound pretentious but that was like one of those things where it's like, wow, you can actually start out with an idea for a song. You can refine it on an acoustic guitar with your buddies. You can record it in a recording studio and find yourself in front of 23 musicians that will always be more talented than you can ever dream of. Right. Who sit down and, and read it off of a piece of paper. It's the first time they've ever seen it. And they play it back flawlessly. And it just hit, it makes every cell in your body vibrate. And, uh, and to me, that was just one of those magical times. So for me, it would definitely be only time will tell. Congratulations on one of the greatest records that I've heard in my life. And, oh, uh, God. and thanks for hanging today. Appreciate it. Chris, look, you're just the best, man. Thank you so much for being so supportive again through all these years. And, and uh, I, I'm just really grateful for the friendship. And uh, I'm really grateful for all your listeners out there for giving us the greatest job in the world as a family for the last hundred years. It's official. Chris Jericho is now the third Nelson brother. That's okay. right. Nice. That's right. Yep. <laughs> We're now officially triplets. Matthew Gunner and Jericho. I'll bring my, uh, I'll bring my jeans that I painted on like you guys with the arrows and the peace and love signs. I think I still have the runner somewhere. Break out the puff paint. All right. The puff paint. Exactly. Totally, man. <laughs> All right, dudes. Hopefully I'll get a chance to catch you on the road at some point whenever we can go out and play again would absolutely love that man and and until then uh you know be well and and be ha happy and healthy because safety is an illusion it doesn't exist <laughs> any anyone anyone tells you that there's such a thing as safety selling you something but until then listen to your music and uh and man uh, my best to your family our best to your family i had no idea you had twin daughters that's awesome i do man it's a beautiful thing so we appreciate that we'll talk to you soon guys thank you guys All right, man. thanks chris cheers thank you